0: Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency, and on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do, and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Dr. Somi Javed, and she is the founder of her MD. She is a board certified OBGYN and sexual health expert. She's cracking that medical glass ceiling and really leading around the world to empower women, to advocate for them, and to close the gender gap in healthcare. And it is huge. We'll be talking about what some of those barriers are, but also more to the point what are those opportunities? Welcome to the show, Dr. Somi. Dr. Somi Javed, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kate. I'm
1: thrilled to be here with you.
0: I am so thrilled whenever I find a badass woman medical leader charging through and changing the world for women's health. So I would love for you to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself because you come from a very interesting family. And full disclosure, your family is from Pakistan. And tell us a little bit about yourself, how you grew up, and what led you to go and study medicine.
1: So I grew up first generation Pakistani-American in a little suburb, uh, Bedford, Ohio. My parents had come from very humble households. They were both educated, but they were lacking for basic necessities growing up. And so they really came with these big dreams for their children, for themselves to have a better life. And so in our house, uh, it was very strict. Education was key. My parents were firm believers. It was the only way for a better life. And so we were really, really encouraged uh, to study and make sure that that was a prime focus in our lives. And so, you know, my dad's a veterinarian. He are always had dreams of going to medical school. But my parents are both from families of nine, and they simply couldn't afford it. And so my dad was able to get a full ride to veterinary school. And so he became a veterinarian. I worked with him in the summers. I loved science and math. And that is how I made the decision to go pre-med when I got accepted into Northwestern University.
0: Now, I've worked a long time in healthcare and predominantly in the developing world. And I do happen to know that Pakistan and India, female health is very scarce. Poverty is, you know, most people living in Pakistan live in extreme poverty. And I know that your parents have experienced both wealth, but also living in some of the conditions. I think you mentioned that your mother told you one time that she had to share one egg with her eight siblings. Mm -hmm. How do you think that affected your own upbringing with a mother who had experienced that kind of poverty?
1: Oh, it was so different than my girlfriends who were also being raised in Pakistani households because my mother had experienced being hungry and never owning a new piece of clothing and knew what that was like. Her mantra was very different. She wasn't preparing me to be a wife or to get ready for marriage like a lot of Southeast Asian women are. She was all about education. And mm-hmm. she said, I never want you be, to be dependent upon another human being for food or for basic necessities. I always want you to be able to provide for yourself. So it was a very unique situation. Most of the girls I grew up with in our culture and our community, there were a lot of immigrants in Cleveland, Ohio from Pakistan. And my girlfriends weren't encouraged to go to school or to really chase their dreams or their education. And both my mother and my father were very supportive of both my brother and my sister and myself about going for it. And I think it's because they experienced hunger. Yes, my mom said before school, her mother would take one egg and split it between the nine children. And then she also remembers trying to make excuses to go to her friend's homes so that she could have a warm snack or some food in her belly after school. Because, you know, they don't have lunch programs. And so my mom said Mm -hmm. she would be hungry most of the day. And then at dinner, they would split like lentils and rice. And and that's how they would, you know, eat and manage with all of those children. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really, really made them appreciate education and the ability to provide for oneself.
0: And I think we forget when we live in this bubble called the United States of America, that most people in the world actually do live like that. We have no concept of that. And then, of course, when it comes to our bodies and our sexual reproductive health, having worked a long time in Pakistan and Southeast Asia, I also know that the taboos that come with getting our first period or trying to get pregnant or even dating, sexual pleasure. A lot of those things are very taboo in those cultures. So were you afforded the privilege of having a family that would talk to you about those things? Because, (laughs) you know, I know a couple of Indian girls that work with us at the Body Agency from Pakistan, actually, who tell us that you cannot just walk into a pharmacy in Pakistan and freely buy condoms or or even sanitary towels or tampons, even if they're actually available in these stores.
1: So growing up, so many people have asked me, how in the world did a Pakistani American girl ever become a sexual health expert? Like what mm-hmm. happened in your world? No. So growing up, I think my parents did the best that they could with the cultural and religious norms that they understood I definitely was able to share with my mom, you know, when I did start my menstruation or period at 12, but there wasn't a lot of preparation about it. Not like it is with my daughters, you know, talking to them about tampons and pads and period underwear and cramping. I remember having to struggle so many years. I had very, very bad periods. I ended up getting diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome And it took my parents years to latch on to letting me go on to birth control. None of the other medications were working. It it took me actually getting anemic and the doctors talking about iron therapy and transfusions to where my parents finally locked on because they assumed that if I was given birth control, that I would become sexually active, right? That it would become this vehicle to other activity that they didn't approve of. So definitely sex was not a discussion in our household it was assumed and encouraged that it was going to happen only after marriage. There were really no discussions about that at all. I will tell you what was rare is my parents were actually affectionate, which you don't always see in Southeast Asian culture. So you would see them hug, you would see them hold hands and show affection in front of us, which, you know, is not typical and normal. And a lot of my patients do complain about that when they're talking about their own lives. So I think my parents did the best they could, but it definitely, we did not talk about anatomy or menstruation or sexuality or female pleasure, or even to what to expect with your first sexual encounter. You know, and we've had all of those conversations in this household already. I have two teenage girls and a son who's 21, and they're pretty well informed.
0: (laughs) How old are your daughters?
1: 13 and 16.
0: Mm, I'm gonna have to get some advice for you. I have an 11 year old who <laughs> she knows what I do. And she sees all the, the stuffed vulva puppets that mm-hmm. I have in my office. And she just thinks it's all weird. But you know, I chase her around the house with them and force her to <laughs> try to understand what's going on down there. She's not started her period yet. But I know it's all coming.
1: She will appreciate you one day when she understands what's going on or is able to recognize an issue before any of her girlfriends would. She'll appreciate it one day. <laughs> so, fast
0: forward, you go to medical school and you have now established her MD. Tell us the concept of her MD because I find it fascinating that under one roof you can get your gynecology, you can get your sexual health. And you can talk about menopause, getting Botox and getting your pap smear all under one roof is phenomenal. So tell us about how this all came about and what her MD is all about.
1: So my impetus to going into women's health care and wanting to be a warrior for women was nearly losing my mother at the age of 45 due to repeated dismissals. You know, she was presenting with chest pain, left arm pain and shortness of breath. If we all Googled those symptoms now, it would be like, it's her heart. And they kept telling her her children were stressing her out. It was problems with too much caffeine. And I'm, you know, pre med looking at her EKG going, this is not normal. Fast forward, she got a diagnosis. She was treated. She had emergent quadruple bypass surgery. I was like, I'm going to be an OBGYN, I'm going to change the world. Went into my private practice job and was seeing 50 patients a day, and the healthcare system and the reality of it quickly smacked me in my idealistic face. I wasn't going to exact change in a system like that, a system that I had to listen to these complex, intimate issues, perform an exam, come up with a diagnosis and a plan in 15 minutes, and make sure I chart it all in the electronic medical record. So just shy of my 40th birthday, I told my husband, I said, I can't do this anymore. Went with a business plan to multiple hospitals and said, we need to treat menopause. We need to treat survivorship. We have Mm -hmm. to take care of sexual health. There's no options. And women are coming in and they want to discuss these topics and came up with a plan. And multiple hospital systems were like, "Hmm, nice idea, little girl, go away. It's never going to work. And so I went to my father and I said, I'm so frustrated. You know, I can't do this anymore. And he said, you know, what have I taught you when you can't find an open door? And I said, what? What have you taught me? He said, build your own door. And uh, I said, "Okay." And so I came home and told my husband. I said, I have an idea. He'll tell you, Kate, anytime he hears those words out of my mouth, he's like, he gets scared. (laughs) He should be. (laughs) (laughs) You know, those dreamers, right, Kate, that we are? Yeah, yeah. So her HerMD is a female-centric women's healthcare center where we were founded on the three core principles of advocacy, empowerment, and education. It's bread and butter gynecology, gynecologic problems with a deep specialty in menopause and sexual healthcare. You can have your imaging done. You can have minor surgery done. You can have your labs drawn. And then, yes, we have a full blown medical spot for laser hair removal, lasers, cool sculpting, Botox, fillers. And it's really, really nice because number one, it's convenient. You can come in, like you and I were talking about, PAP, yeah. hormones, Botox. Yeah. Yeah, But if you think about it, there's so many medical conditions like, you know, women who have hirsutism or abnormal hair growth, like me with polycystic ovarian syndrome, they can go get that done in a safe environment where they already have trusted providers and it's under one roof. And so it's a really, really nice marriage of the aesthetic side of the business plus the medical side. Mm-hmm. They, they really, really go hand in hand. And if you think about it, I'm perimenopausal. You know, I've started using Botox and filler. And so as we age, a lot of these other issues come up for us and women want solutions in a trusted environment. Mm. And so that's the birth of HerMD.
0: And, you know, there's so much about what you're doing that I love. Obviously, you know, we're partnering up now at The Body Agency. And by the way, everyone who's listening to this, please go to The Body Agency and learn more about HerMD and how you can get some of these services. And why we put taboos to cosmetic surgery, I do not know. Like my daughter, you know, I taught her how to shave her legs, right? Because she's like, I don't like this hair. And I'm like, no, neither do I. And I shave my legs. And if there's permanent hair removal, I have done that. There's no shame to wanting to look the best that we can possibly look. So I love what you're doing. I also pride ourselves. And I I admire what you're doing because everything that you're doing is medically safe and medically proven. And there are so many issues that we come up with as women. You know, you were talking about a syndrome that you suffered from. So there's this thing called vaginismus where Mm -hmm. we can have a medical condition that prevents us from having sexual intercourse. So mm-hmm. tell us what that is, what causes it, and what we can do as a solution.
1: So vaginismus is the involuntary contraction of the muscles surrounding the vaginal opening. Usually there is some sort of trigger. It can be an emotional trigger for as simple as you were told your whole life that maybe sex was only for marriage, sex was dirty, it can be a physical trigger, mm-hmm. even an attempted sexual assault. Your body's trying to protect itself. Or it can be, you know, someone who was sexually active and then had a really bad obstetric tear, or someone who has gone through an anatomical change, really thin tissue and sex became very painful because of menopause or hormonal changes. Our brain is our biggest sex organ, but it's also our biggest protector. And you can imagine, Kate, if someone is about to get punched in the gut the core contracts, mm-hmm. right? To yeah. protect all those precious organs. So the same thing happens. The brain figures out, it's called the pain reflex. The brain figures out that this, this hurts. And so the muscle spasm. And the first thing we do at HerMD is teach people, they're like, oh, I just can't relax. It's my fault. I don't know what's wrong with me. And once we tell them it's involuntary, there is nothing that you can physically do to make it stop, we have to treat you. There's tears because so many people have been yeah. blaming them, right? Yeah. yeah, and so that's what vaginismus is. You know, we put people in counseling. There's pelvic floor physical therapy. There's dilators. You know, that gently open up the vagina. What we do at her MD is we actually take people back into our surgical suite. And I have trained uh, multiple providers and have been doing it myself, but we inject those muscles around the vaginal opening with Botox.
0: Yeah, I've heard about this. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. And we have a 100% success rate. I've actually submitted this for a clinical case series so that we can show everyone our data, you know, because right now this is off-label use for Botox. So unfortunately, it's not covered by insurance, but the more and more data we present to the FDA the more we will go from experimental to standard of care, right? It's mm-hmm. the only way we're going to move the needle in this country is with data. And so we have 100% success rate. That's not first-line therapy, Kate, by any means. We try all of the, you know, less invasive modalities. But we do this while they're sleeping, so there's no more trauma. We place a dilator while they're sleeping, and then they go home with that dilator, and then they remove it that night, and then they start using that dilator, not the next day but the following day and like i said we have a 100% success rate mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. other thing that's really important to know is that it's not just intercourse for a lot of these women some of them can't use tampons mm-hmm. you know they can't mm-hmm. have a pelvic exam so this mm-hmm. is a very very distressing condition and it prevents a lot of women from even dating and there's a very very high risk of depression anxiety with vaginismus.
0: I actually heard a quote the other day that there are 25 million women in the United States that suffer from some form of vaginismus. I mean, that is gargantuan. Now, I, I also happen to know that you do have quite a few clients from Southeast Asia who look like you. And we know from our research that you do want to find a provider that looks like you and understands your culture. And, you know, whether you are, you know, black, white, Asian, you know, from any culture, it's always embarrassing to go to a gynecologist. It doesn't matter how many times you do. And it really doesn't matter what culture you come from, you know, to get on a bed and spread your legs and put them in mm-hmm. the stirrups. It's horrifying to mm-hmm. any one of us. Right. Talk to me about What you actually learn at medical school about this? Because, you know, I can't tell you how many gynecologists I've had who I often doubt they know what they're talking about. They're not kind, they're not gentle, they're just getting a job done. And you feel like cattle in and out, you know. Mm -hmm. So, what do you learn at medical school? Do they teach you anything about how to treat your patients and
1: how to? Talk about sexual pleasure, for instance, right? No, nothing. So there, you know, I talk about this all the time because I'm changing this with her MD and and training, but no, there is no sensitivity training at all in medical school. Maybe a day, you know, be polite, like make sure the patient, you know, is covered before you walk into the room. So maybe one day in four years. And Female sexuality beyond learning about contraception or how to get pregnant or how to treat a sexually transmitted infection? No, nothing. So all of that training came afterwards through North American Menopause Society, through the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, through my own clinical research, my own preceptorships, you know, with the world's experts. And so, you know, just data came out this week that only 20% of ob 2 are comfortable discussing menopause still in 2022. What about sexual pleasure? Even
0: less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I cannot possibly imagine going to my gynecologist and saying, you know, I really struggle having an orgasm. Cause I know that they will go, uh, 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 uh um, um, uh-huh. um, you know, and come up with some excuse as to why they can't talk to us about it. And also, they are not trained to talk about it which is why we decided to partner up with sex coaches at the body agency because they are trained to talk about it but imagine a world where you go to your gynecologist and they can talk to you about this vital part of our lives
1: no it's there's such a gender disparity that exists in healthcare right now and that's what her md is really working to change you know, vagina is not a dirty word, orgasm is not, female pleasure is just as important as male pleasure. We're not just the recipients of our male partners, if we have male partners. And so, you know, we joke that we're sex nerds at HerMD, but we hear about orgasm, dysfunction, arousal, sexual pain, I have no desire, on a daily basis. 43% of women struggle with one of the domains of sexuality. That's how we describe sexual issues. And the domains are things like libido, arousal, pain, moisture, orgasm. And, you know, even though there's no FDA approved treatment options, let's say for orgasm, there are medications that have statistically significant data that they do help with orgasm. Mm -hmm. We know that Addy and Bailisi, those are both, you know, FDA approved for HSDD or hypoactive sexual desire disorder or low libido. Mm. But there is an objective data score called the FSFI, Female Sexual Function Index. It's like a numerical score that we can grade patients. It's a really quick survey. If you come to her MD, all of our patients get it. So we know where you are and no one feels singled out about their sexuality. But they had positive data not only with low libido but also with orgasm dysfunction. They just don't have the FDA indication for orgasm issues. So, you know, testosterone, there was a global consensus statement that testosterone helps with all the domains of sexuality and can help women with orgasm. There are localized creams that we can use that help with um, vasodilation that will increase blood flow to the clitoris. So we know that erotica, written erotica, you know, mm-hmm. Meet Rosie, that wonderful yeah. app, you know, started mm-hmm. by Lindsay Harper, my yeah. colleague and dear friend. We she partner with them. Yes. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. She's amazing. And we're both each other's cheerleaders and have seen each other in our companies grow. But, you know, she published this very elegant data and they, that also helps with orgasm. And so, so many women are like, well, there's no FDA approved treatment options. I said, Yes. But there are so many treatment options that are evidence based that yep. we can offer you. And so when they hear this, you know, they're so excited then yep. because we yep. can offer them, you know, and whatever they feel comfortable with. Do they want an over-the-counter option? Do they want to try a compounded cream? You know, do they want to try a laser? I mean, there are so many things that we can offer to patients, and so yep. that's our goal at Her MD: offering mm-hmm. them choices and yep. all- educating them on what's happening.
0: Why do you think that there is such a massive gap in female health and sexual wellness?
1: Oh, where do I get started? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you and I both know this. There's a profound lack of funding still, right, when it comes to female healthcare issues. It's changing. I get so excited when I see all my colleagues getting funded and we got funded last year and we're in the middle of our next round. So lack of funding, underrepresentation in clinical research trials.
0: I understand that most of the clinical trials men are used and not women, which is in the past, which is why there is such a gap now. Is that true?
1: Yeah. So women are traditionally uh, underrepresented in about three out of every four clinical trials. Still,
0: yes. Oh, yeah. Gosh, that's a whole podcast right there.
1: <laughs> that's a whole podcast, and despite yeah. women outnumbering men in the healthcare workforce. We still represent less than 30% of decision makers. And then there's a profound inherent underlying bias against female patients that is very pervasive in medicine. And it doesn't matter if it's a male or female provider, it exists. And there's two studies that I allude to you know, there was this data pulled from a neurologic institute in the 1960s, and I think it was from the UK, and all these women had been diagnosed with psychiatric issues. But when they actually looked through the charts, nearly 70% of them actually had underlying neurologic issues like Parkinson's and things like that. And but they were all, you know, they assumed, oh, they're women, they're just, you know, they've got psychiatric issues. And then if you think about even the vocabulary and some of the language we use in medicine, like the Latin root for uterus is mitra, like endometrium, myometrium. But what do we call it when we remove a uterus? It's a hysterectomy yeah. coming from the term yeah. hysterical, right? If we remove wow. it, maybe we'll wow. remove the hysteria. Wow. And so, you know, there's all this data in my mom's story. You know, female cardiac patients are much more likely to die. And it's mm-hmm. not because they don't try to seek out help or they don't understand that something's wrong. It's because they're dismissed. And Mm -hmm. so we have this phenomenon of what I call invisible patients in this country. And that's what I feel like women are. We're invisible Mm -hmm. patients. We're dismissed. Mm -hmm. We're underrepresented. We're not Mm -hmm. funded. We're not leaders. And so that's what we have to change. All those facets.
0: Well, you and I are warriors and we are going to change the world for women's health. And I also happen to know that in the U.S. alone, 50 million women right now are going through menopause. That would mean that probably about a billion women around the world are going through menopause right now. And I happen to have worked in healthcare now for over 20 years. And never along my journey of working across 60 countries did the word menopause even come up. It didn't even come up. Because it's not considered a medical condition. <laughs> but a billion women around the world mm-hmm. are going through menopause.
1: So what do you think about that? I think it's crazy. And I think we, it's time that we change the narrative on how we discuss menopause. Because like you said, 50% of the world's population, if they're lucky enough, will go through menopause. Mm-hmm. And that's when we're reaching our career peaks. We're done with yeah. childbearing. And when I read that article um, last year, yeah, more more time for sex, more time with our partner, but 900,000 women left the workforce in the UK because of menopausal symptoms and we're not treating patients. I mean, Kate, I have news anchors who come to me and say, if you don't fix this, I'm going to have to quit my job because the minute the lights hit me, I'm hot flashing. I have execs who come to me and say, I have brain fog. It's as bad as when I was pregnant or as bad as when I was going through chemo. I can't think, I can't process or they're so worried about not going to a meeting because if the air conditioning doesn't kick on, they're worried they're going to start dripping sweat and they don't want to be embarrassed. And you know, you add that to the weight gain, the joint pain, the dryness in the vagina, the increased risk of urinary tract infections and vaginal infections, all of these things. I mean, there's almost 50 described symptoms of menopause. It's crazy that we're not addressing these issues for women.
0: It is absolutely crazy that we are not. And I happen to also know that the menopause business is a $6 billion untapped Mm -hmm. business. And we need to find a way for you to scale and scale worldwide. Is that part of your plan? I know that we're talking about it with you because (laughs) we want to ship you off all over the world. But how do you really think that this can and should scale? around the world because it's unique what you're doing is absolutely unique
1: it's so um, flattering and humbling that you say that the plan right now is to expand within the u.s the goal is to eventually have 40 to 50 centers i have been approached by physicians from south america from dubai from canada Asking that we please bring her MD centers Israel. Um, I've had doctors reach out to me on social media saying, "Can you please come? Can you train us on vaginismus?" So, is the need there? Yes. I would just need a lot more funding. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know funding, funding, funding. funding—that is the
0: key. You know, I I have a lot of friends in the Middle East. And I actually just was on vacation with a very dear friend who is a sheikh, actually, from Saudi Arabia. Are you Muslim, may I ask? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the Muslim culture, I wouldn't even know where to begin and even asking the question of how do Muslim women really access the care that they need? Because newsflash, Muslim women are just the same as white women and Jewish women and, you know, from all different religions. But it there is so many taboos still about looking under the burqa and, you know, having to go through all of these issues as a Muslim woman. Any thoughts on that?
1: I think there's a lot of taboos. I think there's a lot of fear. I frankly think there's a lot of misinformation. And I think if we give women a safe place to learn about their anatomy in a doctor's office, then I think, you know, that would be very beneficial because the conversations aren't happening. I think they're happening more with this generation, but they weren't happening with mother-daughter as much as they should have. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, we really need to fix the way we treat women. Like you said, you just can't come in and put a woman up in stirrups. You have to understand She had an exam before. My mother talks about her first exam in the United States and she was traumatized because she had never experienced a gynecologic exam in Pakistan. And even though the doctor was kind, he did not take the time to understand the culture that this is the first time she was getting undressed in front of someone that wasn't her husband and and didn't give her that extra time or consideration. And I think that is huge. And I think also allowing these women to talk about sexual health and sexuality and pleasure, because so many of them want to. And then when they come to us, they say, Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, Dr. Javade, I have only had examples of obligatory sex or sex for procreation, or I've only seen relationships that came out of arranged marriages. And you know, I had a love marriage, but I'm really struggling on how to show affection or own my own sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that they want to talk about these things. But I think it's all about education, dispelling myth, and giving women a safe space to talk about these things. Mm
0: -hmm. And if we really look at how to change the world in this regard, if we are able to talk to all women about their sexuality and their pleasure and what they need to be healthy in their bodies and down there this is a gateway also to talk to them about contraception and planning their families and giving access to contraception. I mean, just this notion of sexual pleasure and why isn't that a health category, right? Just as simple as that. Why is not sexual pleasure a health category? Because guess what? It is for men, right? Billions of dollars is spent on Viagra and You know, it's supplied in the military, for God's sakes. Why is it not a category for women?
1: You know, what I teach is sexual health care is health care, you know, because unhealthy people typically they're not having sex, right? If you're very, very ill, you're not having sex. And so for me, it's another vital sign when I'm talking to patients. And, you know, currently it's 26 medications for men. I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but only two for women. And our first medication wasn't approved until 2015. And it took six years to get through the FDA. Viagra was fast-tracked, Kate, six months. Wow. Six months. It was fast-tracked like an emergency medication is fast-tracked. And then I had a patient the other day, and this story will make you so angry. I had her on Intrarosa. It's a vaginal insert. It breaks down into estrogen and testosterone. It is used for sexual pain, vaginal dryness, and the the insurance company wouldn't cover it. And basically, the reason was sexual health is not necessary for life. Basically, is the letter they wrote to me and wrote to her. Meanwhile, they are paying the same insurance company for her husband's Viagra. So what is the messaging there, Uh. Kate? That sexual health care only matters for your husband, but not for you.
0: Right there. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Right there. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My last question to you, because sadly, if you can believe it, we're out of time. It's gone so fast. Is a libido post-menopause. Mm. A lot of the image of menopause and that's it and we're all dried up, which is absolutely ridiculous. What's the story on wanting sex post menopause? If you get the right hormone treatment, we understand that estrogen is king and queen and prince and princess all wrapped up. What's the story? Are we going to feel horny post menopause?
1: Absolutely. I have patients and know women that are having the best sex of their lives in menopause. And so when you think about female sexuality, it goes way beyond just a blood flow problem. It's a biopsychosocial model. So basically health, relationships, biology, hormones, you have to take all of that into account. As I mentioned before, there are two medications to help with low libido, both Adi, which is a nightly pill, and Vilisi, which is an on-demand injection, much like Viagra, You inject yourself 45 minutes before you want to want to have sex. The beautiful thing about both of these is they're non-hormonal and they work on neurotransmitters in the brain. So a lot of people are candidates for them. And then testosterone is proven to help with all the domains of sexuality. And Kate, testosterone is just as important for you and me as it is for men, because it is really the hormone that supports our genital health but also our sexual health. And so mm-hmm. there's a multitude of options for low libido, but there's also, you know, sexual counseling. If there's issues in the relationship, a lot of times, you know, that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's pain that requires public floor treatment. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's pain that we can fix with a radio frequency treatment or laser. So once we address it, then we come up with a treatment plan. But no, women can have the best sex of your life. Because you're not worrying about pregnancy. There's no children knocking on the door anymore.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that really sums it up because the brain is our most sexual organ and it's also how we feel, right? Mm -hmm. So if we have taken care of ourselves from head to toe, including feeling great about our bodies then we are going to have the best sex of our lives. And this is exactly what I believe in. It is exactly why we formed a partnership with you. And Sony, we are absolutely thrilled to have you on our bodyboard, to have our partnership with you. And I absolutely thank you for the work that you're doing. We are going to help you to scale not just in America, but around the world, because your model works. And it's all about finding the right model and then helping it to scale. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. We're very lucky to have you and the world is very lucky to have you. So thanks for being on the show.
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) Kate, thank you so much. I am so humbled. I am such a fan of the work that you are doing. And to hear those words from you seriously. uh, So humbled.
0: Well, everyone who's listening, please check out the work of her MD. You can go to bodyagency.com and watch this space. This will not be the first time that Somi will be on this podcast. We have so much more to talk about. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a Dignity Kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.